The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. Become voracious readers, you know, because, you know, I don't have, I've got three degrees in mechanical engineering. I don't have a business degree, but I would say I could probably hold my own because I've probably read, I've probably read four or 500 business books over the past 20 years. Welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Chris Alexander, who is an expert on assessing damage to high-pressure pipelines around the world and has lived in this industry for nearly 30 years. Chris has bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees in mechanical engineering and is the founder and president of ADV Integrity, an engineering consulting firm servicing the oil and gas equipment industry. Chris, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for being with us today. You bet, Aaron. Appreciate uh, you asking me to be part of this. Well, tell me a little bit about how you decided to become an engineer in the first place. Yeah, so I've got uh, probably like a lot of engineers. I like math and science as a kid. Um, I, uh, I wanted to be a Dallas Cowboy uh, football quarterback, but figured out pretty quickly in fifth grade I didn't like getting hit. <laughs> <laughs> so that's back when Roger Stallback was the Dallas Cowboy quarterback. So the good news is my plan B was I was a really good student. And so um, – Probably very much influenced by my family. So my, my father was a professor at Texas A&M in mechanical engineering. So he obviously was an engineer. And then my grandfather uh, was also an engineer. He went to A&M. So I'm a third generation Aggie mechanical engineer. Nice. And, uh, just, you know, it, that was just something I wanted to do growing up. Like a lot of kids, I like, you know, playing with Legos. Um, I also wanted to be a fighter pilot, but um, because I don't have good eyesight, they didn't let me do that. So they said, we don't let blind people fly F-16s. So, <laughs> um, so you know, kind of uh, engineering just seemed to be very natural. Um, and, you know, I've enjoyed it. I'm Having done this for 30 years, it's very different than what I thought when I was a, a senior at A&M literally 30 years ago. Uh, but I, I strongly encourage uh, you know, students, uh, I'm a chairman of a, a Christian school chairman of the board and I encourage kids to, to go into engineering. It's just a great, a great career. What is different about engineering now that you didn't expect back in college? Well, I think to be honest, it's a lot more fun. Um, I, uh, I married a real cute blonde, uh, at A&M about 30 years ago, we both went to A&M. And so she's taught me how to have fun. Um, I'm a lot less introverted than I was 30 years ago, but, um, the, the other thing is I really like people. Um, so I'm probably a little bit of unusual as an engineer. I'm a, if you met me, you'd think I'm an extrovert, but I, I really enjoy management. Um, I love sales and the beauty of it is I can walk into a room, you know, with advanced degrees in mechanical engineering and I can solve problems that really help people. And so, you know, we have a whole company. I started this thing about four years ago. And we got eight engineers now and a lot of really smart technicians in our lab. And, you know, on a daily basis, we're serving literally clients around the world, you know, with, with very challenging engineering problems. 
I think that's a really good point that engineering is more fun than going to school for engineering. Yeah, uh, amen. <laughs> I remember it being in school. It was tough. I, 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 I did okay, but it was a struggle for me. And I did not love engineering school. And there were some times when I thought, am I in the right place? You know, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. Uh, but once I got into the field and started practicing, I, I realized, yeah, I'm in the right place. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, and I think, you know, probably in defense of the professors, I mean, you and I have opportunity. We work on engineering projects every day. So, you know, we could we could wow an audience of college kids and just tell stories of, you know, projects that we work on that the professors don't really have those luxuries. I mean, you know, right now I'm probably working on 20 or 25 projects. Each one of them are really interesting. And, you know, if I'm a student sitting in the audience, it's like, man, this is what we get to do. So it's not just learning fluid mechanics and, you know, thermodynamics and strength of materials. It's how we apply the things that you and I learned in school, which is what makes it fun. So, you know, to me, the absence of application um, and, and to be honest with you, I think there's probably a lot of kids that go into engineering and, you know, they really kind of get run off their first year just because they're like, why am I doing this? But if they spend a day with you and me and got to see the fun stuff that we do, they're like, you know what? It's worth it uh, to kind of have to stick it out. Yeah. Doing is better than learning about doing. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to dig into ADV integrity a bit, but before we do that, can you spend just maybe a minute or two talking about your experience before ADV and, and kind of how you got to where you are now? Yeah. So I, uh, I went to, went to Texas A&M, got a degree in mechanical engineering, and then I was in the Corps of Cadets. A&M at one point was an all-male military school, and so it still has the Corps of Cadets. And uh, quite a few students that graduated in the Corps take military contracts. I did not do that, um, but, uh, but my wife was a couple years behind me, so I stayed and, and got my master's. And so I, I came to Houston in 1993 and worked for an engineering consulting company that that uh, was relatively small and in my, you know, my time there, almost 25 years, the company really grew. And uh, I got involved in the, the oil and gas industry because that's what this consulting company did. And specifically, I was able to get focused on high pressure transmission pipelines, which doesn't sound very sexy. Um, but if most people in the United States realize the role that pipelines play in our daily lives, they would be astounded. Um, most of our pipelines were built before 1960. And so there's a lot of opportunities to, to keep the older pipelines running. And we've got brilliant people in the pipeline industry that inspect them. Um, I tend to be kind of in the middle between inspection and rehabilitation. So I had a, a, just a great career and a, a gentleman named Joe Fowler. Dr. Joe Fowler was, uh, was kind of my mentor for much of that time and just a great leader, an incredible engineer. And so I just, I was at a point where I kind of wanted to do my own thing. And so I started ADV. Um, it was pretty scary. I was 48 years old at the time that, that I started this. Um, but I, I like people. I like to, to help them. And so that was kind of the foundation of how we got started. You know, so for about a year and a half, I kind of worked by myself, um, which, which is hard for somebody that likes people. And so, you know, I managed to keep things going and saved quite a bit of money. And then as we rolled into 2019, uh, convinced a couple other people to join the party. And we rented a 17,000 square foot warehouse, uh, Northwest part of Houston and started this test lab. So that's kind of where that, you know, that's kind of how it all got started. 
Excellent. Thank you for that background. Uh, you mentioned that most people don't really realize or appreciate the role that these uh, oil and gas pipelines play. And I think you're right. It's just this thing that happens in the background and none of us really think about. What What are a few interesting things about, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being very general here, but hopefully yeah, you sure. can fill in the blanks. What are a few interesting points about pipelines that uh, most of us never even consider or realize? Well, I think one, and I alluded to earlier, is just the age of our infrastructure. Um, we're, I mean, we're doing a bunch of tests right now, pipes that were built in the 1940s and 50s. And so the manufacturing processes back in those times were not as good as they are today. I mean, it is amazing, though, that uh, the ductility that steel has, uh, what we, you know, what we can do with steel. And, you know, there's a little pipelines from the 1920s and 30s that are still operating if you look on the application side, though, you know, you and I are both uh, obviously involved in technology and the electricity that we have comes from primarily gas-fired power plants. So when these pipelines were built in the 1940s and 50s, it was primarily to send uh, gas from, and I'm sp- speaking specifically of natural gas, but sending gas from the Gulf Coast up to the northeast, you know, kind of where you are up there. Um, today, because of shale, we actually have reverse flow. And so the big energy consumption that we have in the U.S. is primarily here in the south driving air conditioners in the summer. And so those pipelines are literally sending gas from where you are down to us here in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of a high level overview from a specific standpoint. Um, and I often encourage students who are considering going into engineering, there are real opportunities on the inspection side. So we have what are called inline inspection tools and they're multi-million dollar tools that run through these pipelines and they'll inspect and find everything from cracks, dents, corrosion. Uh, if the pipelines moved, they can even detect that. So that drives a, it's just amazing technology. And, and there's, a, you know, companies around the world that develop these technologies, several of them out of Germany. Well, one of the things that I learned about you that's kind of interesting is you work with your daughter, Ashley, and uh, you have a podcast with her as well. (laughs) We'll we'll talk about that. I, I, I wondered, how is that working with family? Is it, do you recommend it? You know, you have to have a you have to have a good relationship. And actually, Ashley graduates uh, from from Texas A and M next next week with a marketing degree. Um, you know, we have a great relationship as I do with our other two children. Um, it's one of those things that you got to make sure you have a good relationship because if you don't and you go into it, you're going to find out that you don't. <laughs> so probably a challenge for her is, you know, is when I ask her to do something, you know, she has to separate the fact that she's my daughter and if she doesn't want to do it. That's fine. But um, so far, it's worked real well. So I'll, uh, I'll let you know in a year how it's going. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a similar experience. Yeah, my wife did some bookkeeping for us uh, for a while. And I think that was a challenge separating, uh, you know, the, the like Aaron, my husband versus Aaron, the business yeah. owner. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not easy. And, and, you know, it's interesting if you look at American history, you know, back if you go a couple hundred years ago, you know, sons would follow their fathers, you know, which in some regards is what I did, um, you know, but when the industrial revolution happened, really the dads left the homes and they went into the cities and started working. So you didn't, you, you kind of lost that foundation. that was part of kind of our American culture. So I don't know, I'd, I'd love, you know, uh, I like building business and I love the idea of our family working together. 
I just have to be open-minded that, you know, all my kids aren't going to be engineers. And so if we're going to do business together, I have to have a little more of an open mind. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, one of ADV's focuses is helping companies understand risks through real world testing. Are there any specific examples of, of how you have helped a company accomplish this that you can share? Yeah, we're right in the middle of doing a, a really neat project, you know, and, and as I said, we've got this huge warehouse and we've got, um, I should have probably sent you some pictures, but people can get on our website and see what we're doing. But we've got a big bending beam that we'll do, and I'm not making this number up, it's 3 million foot pounds in bending. Wow. So just envision this, so we can load a 30 foot sample up there. 30 inches in diameter. Of course, you know, your podcast folks aren't seeing this, but you know, you got 30 inch diameter, two and a half feet foot diameter, 25, 30 feet long. We, uh, we do four point bending and we bend the heck out of the pipe. And so we've got a project that we're working with an operator. We're eventually going to do what's called a joint industry program, a JIP. And uh, JIP is basically, you get a, a lot of pipeline companies that will put money together and they combine their resources to solve very challenging problems. So we've used this big four-point bend beam, and we're bending girth welds. So when you weld pipelines up, you have a weld that joins them. It's called a girth weld. It runs circumferentially around the pipe. So these girth welds were installed in the you know, 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and they didn't have the inspection technologies that we have today. For the most part, the welds are extremely good, but... What we're doing is looking at older welds that might have defects in them, and we're reinforcing them with composites, which is pretty much the world that I live in. That was even the basis of my PhD work. So we take this 30-inch diameter pipe, we put composite, put carbon fibers around the pipe, and then we conduct a bending test. So that's just a great example. We're actually looking at advancing technologies. We're helping the pipeline industry integrate these technologies we're validating them in our full-scale test lab just to make sure that they perform. And because our pipelines in the U.S. are regulated, we have to demonstrate to the, uh, the Office of Pipeline Safety that these, these repair technologies work. And the great, a great place to do that is in full-scale destructive testing. Interesting. Um, is steel still what is most typically used for pipelines or is the industry moving towards more composites or, or newer materials? Yeah. So there's, there's kind of two camps. One is you have the existing infrastructure. It's all steel, you know, and so we're using composites to repair pipelines, whether you have corrosion or dents or like in this application growth welds, we're finishing up a joint industry program, looking at reinforcing cracks with carbon epoxy technology. So on the, the older existing infrastructure, we're, re, we're using composites to repair them. On the new infrastructure side, there is an increase in use of non-metallic materials. Um, it's going to take a while. Steel is so forgiving, you know, because you got ductility that's anywhere from 20 to 40%. So you can really bend things. Non-metallics, you know, a, a modern carbon, you might have 1% strain to failure. So there's not a lot of damage tolerance. So I don't think anytime soon we're going to be building, you know, our national infrastructure out of non-metallics. But I do think within probably the next 15 to 20 years, we're going to continue to see more and more of that technology. And these pipelines, I mean, they, they traverse, what, the full width of the country, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of miles of transmission pipelines. So you've wow. got... 
you have transmission, which is just like a transmission power line, right? And, you know, they tend to be large diameter, you know, anywhere from 12 to 48, you know, 42 inch. Then you have distribution, which comes into our houses at smaller diameter. And then you have gathering lines, uh, which if you've got wells in the field, that's how you gather the oil and gas from the field. So you have, you know, three types of, of pipelines that exist in the U.S. And if you add up the transmission, gathering and distribution, it's literally millions of miles of pipeline. And and where are they all going? I mean, there, some of it's coming from the the fields, right, where, where they're pulling crude from under the ground and going right. to refineries. Exactly. After the refinery, where, where does it go from there? Yeah, so it'll typically go wherever the population is, right? So, okay. so if you you know you're gonna you're gonna process it, and so you know I'm not a refinery expert, but I know enough to be dangerous, and so you'll you know be able to pull out diesel and aircraft fuel, plastics, gasoline, and so they have a distillation process that pulls different parts out, and then they just send it to market. So that's the point that it kind of goes from engineering to more of the business side. So, you know, there's a marketing person that says, hey, we need, you know, this much plastic or this much gasoline. And so that's, you know, then you transport it to the areas where it's used. Okay. And uh, what, what's the health of the, the gas industry these days? I mean, we're moving more and more towards um, electric, you know, sustainable, renewable energies. Has that had much of an effect yet on your industry? Well, I think it's having an effect on the oil side. But on the gas side, we're only going to see an increase. And oh, because, really? of, you know, yeah. And I think part of it is, you know, without getting too political, I feel like sometimes people don't understand. And of course, you and I do. But they're like, well, I want electricity for my car, so I'm just going to plug it into the wall. Well, you know, there has to be something on the other side of your wall that generates energy. <laughs> right. And so I feel like at times I wish I could get on an airplane and go to D.C. and to stand before Congress and say, look, you know, I'm, I'm all for these things that you want. But you have to understand the power has to come from someplace. So it either comes from I got a phone call from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission this morning, the NRC. So it's either going to be nuclear power, natural gas, fossil, you know, like coal. So something has to fire the, you know, the steam, the steam lines in our power plants. And at this point, the best source of energy is going to be natural gas. So, you know, we're still building big natural gas pipelines. And that's going to continue to be a big part of our, our national infrastructure. Okay. Well, I'm going to take a, a short deviation from kind of the technical side of our conversation. One thing that I thought was really interesting that you had shared with me earlier was how you created individual introduction videos for each of the engineers on your team, probably not just the engineers, probably for everyone on your team. How have you used these videos and, and how do you think they've helped your company? Yeah. So, you know, kind of in the consulting world and it's, you know, it's a somewhat like what you do, but it's a little different, you know, is that we'll take a young engineer and we'll teach them about a certain discipline, you know, develop some expertise. And within typically three to five years, they need to have some niche areas that when they walk into a room, people know that, hey, they can do final element analysis or they're great at data acquisition or they're good at metallurgy. And so um, even though I'm an engineer, I guess in my heart, I'm a little bit of a marketing person, a PR person, you know, and if you spent more time with me, you'd kind of wonder if I was even an engineer. So, so we, uh, when we started the company, I started hiring people. My goal is to help them become subject matter experts and, and then to promote that so that they always have things to do, you know, so in the consulting space, 
you know, you're always selling yourself. And so we're using technology. And, you know, my daughter Ashley is in our eight, we started a company called ADV Marketing um, to help our company as well as other companies really market themselves. So um, I like, you know, you can tell I like to talk and I enjoy being on videos and enjoy doing podcasts. And so one of the things that we're just working with our engineers is like, let's make a little short videos. You know, nobody's going to watch a 30 minute video. You talking about yourself, but you know, in two or three minutes, you can say where I went to school, what I like to do. And people just get to know you. And, and I'll be honest with you, Aaron, some of it's driven by me watching our kids. You know, they live their lives on YouTube and it's a lot more entertaining. I'll admit, I love to read, but it's more entertaining to watch videos and read a book. So (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's, I think that's such a great idea. Um, uh, I also saw on your website that ADV is a regular uh, donor to many organizations in mm-hmm. your community. I, I recently read a, a book called I Like Giving, which was a, a great collection of little stories about people giving. Yeah. And um, uh, anyway, I, I've been thinking about the idea of giving lately. And, and I wondered, what is the role that giving has played in your company? Well, ironically, it's actually the reason I started the company. Um, I, uh, I love to give. I'm a you know, follower of Jesus Christ, and so he drives what I do. And I know sometimes that's not really popular for people to say that, but I'm, I'm okay saying that at 52 years old. You kind of feel comfortable with it. But, um, you know, Aaron, I started ADV to make a lot of money. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but I want to get to a point, you know, we're pretty close to that, you know, where I, I'm able to live on a lot smaller amount. And I read a book, I guess about 15 years ago called Radical. And this guy just said, you know, we, it, with at least within the church, that we just need to get to the point where people who make a lot of money give a lot of money away. And so my goal at some point is to be able to give a million dollars a year away. And, you know, you know, you see on our website, you know, and I'm not at that point yet, but I'm trending in that direction. And matter of fact, the, the, I think the second year I had the company, I, I was I was able to give more than I'd ever given before. And so, you know, I just we have several organizations that we give to on a regular basis. And then, you know, from time to time, uh, like at A&M, they needed somebody to sponsor, you know, some students. And, you know, we, we gave some money away. So. Um, that's, that's why I do what I do. You know, we, we, I've been very successful and have a lot of, a lot of neat things, neat cars and a a beautiful house. But at some point, once you accumulate those things, you need to really look at the money that you're making. It's like, what am I doing with this? What is the purpose? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a book you, I know you probably well read, but uh, Simon Simek wrote a book called start with why, and I actually got my dad reading it right now. And he just says in this book, and I think he's brilliant and exactly right. If you can get the why right, the how and the what fall into place. You know, so as a leader, if you help your, your organization understand this is why we're doing what we're doing, the how and the what will take care of it play itself. And so, you know, my why is I want to make a lot of money so I can give most of it away. You know, not so I can just, you know, put money in the bank. You know, the other part of this, which dovetails is I love to work, you know, and assuming I'm going to have good health, you know, I'm not necessarily saving for retirement. And it mean, it doesn't mean that I'm not putting money in a 401k, but I know a lot of people my age, you know, they're trying to maximize everything they save, but they're not living their life. Right. Mm-hmm. So if I've got the choice between, let's, let's just throw a number out there, say I can save 50,000 a year or I can give 50,000 a year away you know, why not give more away if you're going to work? I I just don't envision myself retiring. So in one sense, it takes the pressure off the need to save for retiring. I need to give more money away. That's a very interesting standpoint. Thanks for sharing that. 
Yeah, so we'll see how it goes 10 years from now when I'm decrepit and can't work, but that's my philosophy <laughs> right now. <laughs> well, I also read that you love running, so I, I'm guessing you've got a lot more than 10 years left. I do, me. yeah. God gave me good knees, and I'm still running 15 to 20 miles a week, so I'm going to keep doing that as long as I can. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm going to take a real short break here and, and share with the listeners that teampipeline.us is where you can learn more about how we help medical device and other product engineering or manufacturing teams develop turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines to characterize, inspect, assemble, manufacture, and perform verification testing on your devices. We're speaking with Chris Alexander today, who is founder and president at ADV Integrity and is also an avid reader, as as he just mentioned. Uh, In fact, he started a podcast with his daughter called Business by the Books. Can you tell us a little bit about the podcast and and how it got started? Yeah, so it's interesting. I I really, I love to travel, but with COVID, I've gone, I've taken one trip in 13 months. I went to Tulsa about three weeks ago. So anyway, fortunately, I had a good time in Tulsa, but it's probably not uh, everybody's destination for vacation. And I was in Colorado about five years ago, just kind of went up there by myself for a couple of days and uh, took some books with me. And so I'm sitting on the back porch and, you know, coming from Houston uh, in the summer, it's just hotter than Hades here. So we, we get away. And I was just thinking about all the books I love to read. So I, I'm an old dot-com guy. So I got on uh, GoDaddy.com and bought uh, BusinessByTheBooks.com. And so the idea I had about five years ago was that I would just basically talk to people about different books that I had read. So um, my daughter, Ashley, is really good at technology. And so she started making videos. And I was like, why don't we just do something together? So we bought all the equipment uh, to kind of do live streaming and podcasting, you know, all the stuff that you've got really good microphone. Like I can see you've got one there and, uh, I picked 50 books. So I've probably got eight or 900 books in my library. So I spent probably two or three weeks kind of going through and pulling out 50 that were my favorite books and I pulled them off. And then I have a form that I go through And some of these books, Aaron, I hadn't read in 25 years. Like one of the books was Zig Ziglar, see at the top. I think I read that thing in like 1994. And so I got these books out. And so I I have a little one page summary on each book. And so Ashley and I um, will sit down and we'll do a podcast like what you're doing. And she'll ask me questions about the book. And they're typically, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. So one of the things that's really funny is I love to read and um, I read some as a kid, but I think when I probably got into my twenties, I just love to read. And I started reading a lot of business books and those kind of things. So a couple of years ago, Ashley, when she was a freshman at A&M, she called me and she said, daddy, she said, "I, I figured out what you've got. And I'm like, okay, Ashley, what do I have? She goes, you've got kleptonesia. And I'm like, okay, that sounds really impressive. What is it? And she said, well, I'm reading in the, I'm, I'm taking a psychology class and it's people who attribute things that they hear or read from other people to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what I realized is I was reading these books, like the C at the top is I, I had this part of like a life philosophy on something. And what I realized is I got it from Zig Ziglar 25 years ago. <laughs> so, you know, of all these books I've read and like, I'm typically reading three or four books at a time, every book I take two or three, sometimes 10 things and I integrate them into my life and my business philosophy. And so I don't think I've ever read a book that I didn't get something from. So, you know, I, I, I sound like an old guy when I say this, but I really encourage young people, 
become voracious readers, you know, because, you know, I don't have, I've got three degrees in mechanical engineering. I don't have a business degree, but I would say I could probably hold my own because I've probably read, I've probably read four or 500 business books over the past 20 years. And, and so I read a book and then I come to work and I apply it. And if it doesn't work, I tweak it. So the thing is, you, you know, I'm a big advocate of getting degrees, but you don't have to limit the fact that you don't have a you know business degree from being successful in business. I'm curious about the, uh, the life philosophy that apparently you took from Zig Ziglar. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. And I think probably in the title of the book says it very well that, you know, if you want to get to the top, it's not, you know, look at me from the top, I'll see you at the top. So what it means is that you just really make it your life goal to help people. So when I read that book, you know, I was in my, probably in my mid to late twenties and I wasn't managing anybody. I was, I was just a a grunt in an engineering company running finite element models and running full scale tests. But what I realized is if I wanted to be successful, I really needed to help people. So you fast forward the clock, you know, 15 years and I started managing people. What I realized is because I had had a really good career, my goal, and especially right now, my goal is to help all of the people in our organization have great careers. You know, if they're 28 years old and they're going to work for the next 30 years, I want to do everything I can to help them have a great career. So anyway, that's one of those concepts that Zig Ziglar talked about. I mean, that book was probably written in the 1960s, probably even before I was born. Um, and it's just a great life philosophy that, you know, I didn't realize I'd read it in a book 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, what are some of the, the, uh, your favorite books, maybe two, three, four of your favorite books that you can share? Yeah, I think probably my, one of my favorite books in, 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 I don't know if you've read this, it's called the five dysfunctions of a team by Patrick. Yeah. 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 It is, I, it is my, I think it should be required reading for anybody who works. Um, and certainly for anybody who's a leader. So, you know, it just talks about the five dysfunctions of a team. Uh, you know, the two bottom ones are um, organizations that are dysfunctional have a, an absence of conflict or a fear of conflict and a, a lack of trust. And so in any organization, if you're going to be successful, you got to have those things. And so I think, you know, they're good. Uh, they're good. That's a good book to read because if you can build that into your culture that people feel comfortable having conflict, uh, it's just, it's just a great thing. Um, one of the other books that, uh, and I, as I said, I've got 50 of them, but one of them that really impacted me is what got you here won't get you there. And uh, once again, it's, it's another one that is the title says it all, you know, early in your career, you're rewarded for individual contribution to an organization in the latter part of your career. You're rewarded for your ability to get people to move toward contribution to organization. And so Marshall Goldsmith wrote that book and, and just did a great job talking about, you know, what got you to be successful where you are. You need to constantly look at that and say, look, you know, what was successful yesterday? I may need to adapt. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to pull the conversation back to engineering specifically and ask you what, what are some of the common traits or behaviors that you see in the best engineers with whom you've worked over the years? Yeah. So it's a, I mean, that's a great question. It, as silly as it sounds, it's the ability to do basic engineering. And so, you know, you got degrees in engineering like I do. And so you go back to typically somewhere between your sophomore and junior year, 
and I'm a mechanics guy, but you got to the point where you could derive MC over I and you understood, you know, material properties and those kind of things. To me, the most powerful engineer is an engineer that can walk in the room. He didn't have a bunch of books. He didn't need a calculator, but he can just sit there and he understands mechanics enough and the fundamentals that he can he can sit down and solve problems. And once again, it goes back to stuff that you learn probably in the middle part of your college career as an engineer. You know, it's not graduate level, level things. So uh, my I heard a story about my grandfather that my dad told me that he was uh, he was an engineer at General Dynamics and probably had a couple hundred engineers working for him. And they couldn't figure out how to solve a problem. And so this is back in the days when people had slide rulers. And he'd say, you know what, guys, let me let me go to my office for an hour or so, and I'll, I'll come back. And so he would go in his office, and he'd run some calculations, and he'd come out. And he had guys working for him who had PhDs. You know, they weren't using slide rules. They were using calculators and probably even running early-stage final element models. And he'd come out there, and he would be able to solve that problem. And so to me, great engineers can see through all the chaff and all the complexity and they can get down to the fundamentals and solve problems. Whittle those complex problems down to the fundamentals. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, that to me, that's a great attribute for an engineer. And if you're going to be a leader of engineers, you need the ability to do that. Well, how about hiring engineers? I'm, I'm sure you've had your fair share of experience hiring <laughs> engineers over the years. How, how do you assess engineering candidates and, and uh, not just from a technical standpoint, but from a, a culture standpoint as well? Yeah, you know, for the most part, I've had great success in that. And uh, I had a guy tell me years ago that you hire for attitude and you train for skill. And so um, I think about the eight engineers that we have here at ADV and, you know, they're all brilliant guys and they can they can solve really difficult problems, but they get along with people. And uh, to me, that's a challenge sometimes in engineering because, you know, we're all fed when we go to school. It's like you're really smart, you know, and, and then you graduate and you realize all the people that didn't graduate with you. And so you, you enter the workforce with a certain amount of um, confidence slash perhaps even arrogance. And, you know, that confidence is very important. But if it prevents you from working well with other people, it, it just, you're not, you're not going to last. So, you know, we've been, we've been very successful here at ADV um, that we've hired really good people. Um, in one sense, it's easier to hire younger engineers, you know, because they haven't, for lack of better words, been corrupted. <laughs> so um, the other thing, other requirement that we have is all of our, all of our engineers have at least masters. And uh, that was something that I, I got from my previous employer that I think was a good thing because as consultants, you know, we need engineers who can solve problems pretty quickly. And I'm not saying that, you know, the only people who are good engineers have graduate degrees at all. I'm not saying that, but in the consulting world, um, you know, we need engineers that come in and pick things up pretty quickly. And it's just easier to do that with, uh, you know, that there's some vetting that goes on in graduate school that we're taking advantage of. Yeah. So it's an easy filter for you. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And I had a guy tell me one time that, you know, you go to college for your parents, but you go to graduate school for yourself. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very few parents are going to encourage you unless you're a doctor or lawyer to go to graduate school. So. <laughs> Especially if they're footing the bill. Yeah, it's exactly right. They want to get you off the payroll. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, 
as it relates to being an engineer, what, what would the Dr. Chris Alexander of today say to the Chris Alexander who was, you know, still in college or just about to graduate 30 years ago? Oh, that's a good question, Aaron. Well, I think one thing is I probably, and I probably need to tell myself this on a daily basis, but just have fun. Um, I was always kind of uptight, you know, and I don't know if it's just an engineering trait, but, you know, in school I was always nervous because I was getting ready for tests and, you know, I never felt like I was quite good enough. And then you start working and you get the pressures of family and work and running a company. I mean, you know how it is. I mean, it can be extremely successful that, you know, you've either got, I was going to say too much money, but you never have too much money in business, but you know, you got too much work, not enough money and those kind of things. So the conversation I probably have to myself is just enjoy things a little bit more, study hard, but don't be completely wrapped up and, you know, having to study all the time. I'd love to dig into what you said a little bit more, the, the dealing with the stress of, I mean, we can frame it in the context of running a company selfishly. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm asking it, but we all deal with stress. How, how do you deal with stress? How do you kind of kick back and chill out a little bit? Well, it's funny. We talked over the weekend. Um, you know, some people have hobbies and my younger daughter commented, she said, daddy, your, your work is your hobby. (laughs) Yeah, I feel the same about myself. So, I love it. You know, I love I love to work. I, I'll admit, um, I kind of woke up this morning. We had a Teams conversation going with some of our engineers, and one of the guys said, "Look, I'm just going to take a couple days off, go spend some time with my family." And I was like, "Man, that's a great idea." So, I, I think for me to kind of unwind, I love to read. You know, we talked about that before. So all this, you know, my ideal scenario is if I could get on an airplane and go to Colorado for my by myself for probably like two or three days and do a little running in the mountains and just think. Uh, I'm also a big journaler and uh, I love to journal. And I started journaling back when I was a kid and even in college, you know, sometimes I'll get my journal from A&M out and and get it out just to remind myself of who I was. Um, So I think, you know, doing journaling and reading, I I, I do like being outside, you know, so we've got a couple of acres that I'll get out and mow, you know, mow the yard, have what I call lawnmower epiphanies. And uh, you know, you got to find something you enjoy doing, to unplug so that when you got to come back to work that you got new ideas. Yeah. Well, speaking of epiphanies, I had a a small epiphany the other day in the shower where all good epiphanies come. And I've been thinking about stress a lot lately because I've been, I've been stressed out We're we're growing a little bit, which is exciting, but there are challenges that come along with that. And I've been feeling a lot of stress and, uh, 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 one of my, my coaches, um, shared with me that stress is a reaction to focusing your attention on an uncertain future. Mm-hmm. And if you can come back to the right now and, and you know, just for a little while, stop, stop thinking or stop placing your focus on that uncertain future that can help. And uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And the epiphany that I had uh, was this is why I like TV so much, which is kind of embarrassing to say that I, I really <laughs> like TV, but I do. I love just watching a show on TV because uh, I, it's one of the only times when my brain stops going and yeah. I, I can just think about right now, you know, what am I watching right now? This is entertaining me right now. I'm not thinking about who do I need to hire next week. I'm not thinking about how are we going to get this project done on time. Yeah. And, 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 um, uh, to take that, uh, epiphany a little bit further, I, I, I thought about 
physical exercise. You're, you're a runner. You know this. Mm-hmm. You at some point you'll you'll get exhausted. Your body won't be able to continue um, uh, putting that power out and and moving your body. And you have to rest. You have to stop and rest. And wow. I think all of us understand that intuitively about physical performance and physical exhaustion, but I think it's, it's less intuitive when it comes to mental performance and mental exhaustion. And if, if we're always placing our focus on that uncertain future, and I think all of us do this just automatically, we don't even think about it. It just happens. Uh, We can get burned out mentally, but if we can stop and, and just think about, you know, right now, give ourselves a little bit of a break from that, that uncertain future, um, then it's just like taking a break from running, right? You let your body uh, cool down. You let your body gain its energy back and and then you can pick up again. No, that's a good point. Well, and I think that's why, and you know, this is a business owner is, is business is predicated on the ability of, to think about new ideas, right? And so if you, if you run out of ideas in business, you're in trouble. And so I think that's a lot of what I do like on the weekend. I mean, I I worked a little bit, uh, but I spent most of the weekend just, you know, hanging out, running, reading, hanging out with the family. And for me, I get, I, I, uh, most guys build their houses around garages. I built our house around my study. And so I walk in that room and it's a two story study. It's got all my books up at the top, but I spend, you know, probably a thousand plus hours a year just in that study, just thinking and thinking of ideas. So, um, and to me, that's a recharge, right? That I've got new ideas. You know, the other thing I was going to say, I think sometimes one of the reasons that we get stressed out is we don't plan well. And so one of the things that we did, I had uh, our ADV marketing ladies, there's four ladies in that. And then I had the senior engineers and there were five, four of us and then our BD guy. So we had nine of us in here and we spent about three hours strategically planning what we're going to do for the next three months. We're going to do videos, brochures, uh, podcasts, you know, live streams, some different things. And to me, that reduces my stress level because we're being intentional in going out and getting work. And not all of that's going to generate work, but it's kind of like going fishing. You know, if you throw one, one hook in the water, you're going to catch one fish. But if you have a net or you throw 10, 10 hooks out there, the likelihood of catching fish is much better. So for me, what's reduced my stress in our organization is having brilliant people who are driven to go help clients. And, you know, I don't get stressed out like I did probably two and a half or three years ago because there's a lot of us rowing the boat versus the early part of the company. I was primarily the guy that was doing most of the rowing. And so anyway, I, I think, you know, if you're a, if you do a good job as a leader and you develop people around you, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have stress, but it changes. And if you get really good people around you, you get counsel. And so, you know, your stress level should be significantly lower than when you're doing driving things by yourself. And the planning point is a very good one. I mean, to me, that that just goes back to the uncertain futures. If you have a plan, it's much less of an uncertain future right, and right. much more of a you know near near certain future well and i think for a lot of businesses that you know you you can probably more be more strategic than you realize i mean i love having a consulting company I, if we want to put a joint industry program together or we want to help a client we can make a decision to go get that work and um you know we uh, as a company we've interfaced with bankers 
And sometimes I'll come out here and look at our P&L and our balance sheet. And, you know, we've grown very quickly. And I think a lot of it's God's blessing. But I also think because we've been very strategic in go at, going out and getting work. And I, I think that's, uh, that's one of the things I love. And so basically I'm applying a lot of the engineering principles that you and I, you know, learned in school to building business, which is why I think, you know, engineers who are business savvy, they have an incredible firepower that, you know, the average person who just is thinking like a business person doesn't have. Right. Engineers are trained problem solvers. Exactly. Yep. And business has problems for sure. Yeah. <laughs> thank goodness. Otherwise we'd be out of a job. Exactly. Thank God for entropy. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are uh, a couple of the biggest problems that you face at work? Well, I think a lot of it is uh, is personnel, and not that we have problematic people at all, but you know, it's you just want to make sure that everybody is accountable and that they know what's expected of them. So, I think I think the people part of the business is the hardest part of it. Um, I do think we have in our industry we have a changing oil and gas industry. You know, we uh, it's amazing the animosity that's directed toward the energy industry, and it's like we're just trying here down here to help people have energy at their homes and their cars. And you know, the pipeline industry is so vilified. It's like you know, how do you think you get gasoline in your car or power in your house? You know, don't don't shoot us. We're just trying to help. So I think that's a challenge too, is not knowing where it's going to go. Um, you know, I, as a, as a business owner, I'm glad I'm in the pipeline industry, but you look offshore, uh, here in, here in Houston, you know, the offshore energy industry, you know, 15 years ago, it was blowing and going, it's been decimated with, with a low price of oil and really administrations, uh, that are, that are hostile to offshore drilling. So anyway, t- to me, the people part, and then the vision for where things are going, those are the greatest challenges, you know, for me in running a business. Yeah. Understood. Um, I'm stealing this question from Tim Ferriss. If you could put anything on a billboard for engineers to see, what would it be? Ooh, wow. Um, become an engineer, change the world. (laughs) Inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is almost everything you do, an engineer has touched it, right? I mean, I've got a bag of chips here and peanuts and engineer, you know, that works, you know, planners, you know, those peanuts don't just get in there magically. An engineer had to build an assembly line, you know, the computers that were on the internet, you know, engineers, um, literally change the world. And the other thing I like about engineering is it's very objective, right? If I go out in the lab and I pressurize a pipe, it blows up. It doesn't mean I like it or I dislike it. It's very objective. You know, it's like, well, I like this pipe better than to do another. You know, it's going to blow up at a higher pressure. It is what it is. And as, when I was in school, I really didn't like the English classes because if the professor didn't like what I was writing about, even if it was well-written, he might not give me a good grade versus, you know, my mechanics class, MC over I was MC over I. It was either a right or a wrong answer. So, I like the black and whiteness of being an engineer. Much easier to dis- define success as an engineer than exactly uh, history major, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Arts or major or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, Chris, be- before I let you go, is there anything that we should have talked about that we haven't hit upon? 
Yeah, I don't think so. I, I, or maybe one last thing I'd say is I really, you know, and I'm not sure the, the demographics of who listens to your podcast, um, but, you know, I'd, I'd like to think maybe there's some, some high school students out there um, who are thinking about careers. And, you know, you and I both, if we had to do it over again, we would have become engineers. It's a, it's a great career. Um, but in order for our nation to be competitive, we need engineers and there's a lot of opportunities, um, you know, and you and I both run businesses. So, you know, we've, we've been the benefactor of being able to do engineering, but also run businesses. So I just encourage more students uh, to, to become, to consider engineering as a career, you know, from a financial standpoint, you look at starting salaries um, right out of undergraduate school, I would argue engineers probably have the highest salaries now, you know, kids go to law school and medical school, but I'm talking about right out of a four-year degree, there's probably, and if you're a parent listening to this, there's probably not a better investment in a four education than getting an engineering degree. Well said. All right. Chris, how can people get a hold of you? Well, several ways. If you're on LinkedIn, you can find me, uh, just, you know, LinkedIn, and I'm out of Houston. Um, our website is advintegrity.com, and you can see me that way. And then uh, I've got an email, which is chris, C-H-R-I-S, dot Alexander at advintegrity.com. Um, if you email me, I can't guarantee I'll get back to you. Aaron kind of knows that. Uh, Aaron and I probably both get a couple hundred emails a day, but I'll do my best to respond. But um, you know, would certainly be glad to entertain any questions that you might have about what we're doing. Wonderful. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I, I really deeply appreciate you spending some time and, and sharing your insight and wisdom. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. You bet, Aaron. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.